Greetings to each of you in the Master's name this morning. The title of the message this morning is, My Responsibility to God, The Path to Meaning. So, I thought maybe I'd start out by just explaining what I mean by meaning. Well, what makes life worth living? Is life worth living to you? What makes it worth living? Worth is a value term. What gives life value? That's what I'm trying to to reach for with the word meaning. Ecclesiastes 12.13 Let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. Fear God and keep His commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. So you would get the idea from the word duty that that's responsibility. And that the word duty there is actually added in. The text says, for this is the whole of man, or this is everything that man is. To fear God and keep His commandments. This is the everything of humanity. But verse 14 then, the following verse says, For God shall bring every work into judgment with every secret thing, whether it be good or whether it be evil. So everything that we do is going to be brought before God in judgment. So meaning is not really tied to things and emotions. It's really tied to morals. Because what we are, the whole of what we are, is brought before God in judgment. The right and wrong, the good and evil. So meaning in life is tied to good and evil, to what we do morally. So why preach a message about this? It's kind of a big picture the, the thing of meaning is kind of a big picture idea, right? Or is it connected to the everyday and to the small things too? And I want to bring those together, but it is kind of a big picture idea. And there's, there's two things I'd like to, to put forward at the beginning to say that, that these are kind of the reasons why I'm preaching this message. The first one is that meaning is the antidote to complacency. So complacency is, is comfortableness and, and relaxation and not really drive and not having drive and motivation. The second one is that meaning justifies suffering and struggle. Or it comes against suffering and struggle that we face in life. So I got this question after my last message on wrestling with God in the story of Jacob about what is the proper wrestling with God. I'd like to talk about that just a little bit. I'm going to give you God's 9-11. So 9-11 is the emergency number that you call, right? When you have an emergency, you call 9-11. Well, God's 9-11 is Luke 11, 9. So you can turn to, to Luke 11, 9. I'm going to actually start reading before that. Verse 9 is kind of the beginning 
of the passage that I consider to be God's 9-11. But I'm going to begin at verse 5. And he said to them, Which of you shall have a friend, and go to him at midnight, and say to him, Friend, lend me three loaves. For a friend of mine has come to me on the journey, and I have nothing to set before him. And he will answer from within and say, Do not trouble me. The door is now shut. My children are with me in bed. I cannot rise and give to you. I say to you, though he will not rise and give to him because he is his friend, yet because he is because of his persistence, he will rise and give him as many as he needs. So I say to you, ask and it will be given you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives and he who seeks finds. And to him who knocks it will be opened. If a son asks for bread from a father among you, Will he give you a, him a stone? Or if he asks a fish, will he give him a serpent instead of a fish? And if he asks for an egg, will he offer him a scorpion? If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your fa- heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to them who ask Him? I'm going to stop reading there. So Jesus tells this story, begins this with a story about this friend that or this man who, who has someone come to his house and he wants to provide for him and he doesn't have of his own to provide. And so he goes to his friend and says, give me loaves. But it's inconvenient for the friend to give him the food. And so his friend says, no, I'm not going to do it because it's inconvenient. But he doesn't stop. He persists. Your King James says, importunity. And it has the idea of like persistence that won't stop. Overly persistent. Like even after you're like, okay, I'm bothering this guy and I'm going to keep on bothering him until I get what I want. That's the idea of the kind of persistence that it's talking about here. And Jesus uses that story to say, get serious with God. Ask, seek, knock. Keep pressing, keep pushing, keep seeking. That's the kind of wrestling with God that I'm talking about. If we, being evil, know how to give good gifts to those that we love, how much more will your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to them that ask Him? How much more will He give us what we need if we come to Him with that kind of a seeking persistence where we know that He has what we need and we're going to hang on to Him until we get what we need? That's what it means to wrestle with God to me. Maybe you have more idea than that, but He has what we need and we're going to reach for it until we get it. And it's clear that God wants us to do that. God wants us to enter into that wrestling. He tells us to do it. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened. So in the, in the New Testament, there's this idea. So... Well, what kind of a person is that? That's not a person who's complacent. That's not a person who is just sitting back and doing nothing. That's a kind of person who is contending. And we have that picture in the New Testament. We have the picture of a soldier. We're told to be soldiers. We're told to be those running a race. Those who are engaged. We're contending for a crown. We're reaching for something. 
And it, it says something about our existence. It's, it's God saying something about who we are as people. We're not here just to be complacent or happy or materially satisfied. We're here for something beyond that. We're here to reach for something beyond those material things. Those temporary things. We talked about temporary things in Sunday school class. We're here for something beyond the temporary things. And here's the exciting and hopeful part to me about this. That the fact that God wants you to engage indicates that what you do will make a difference. So the life that you live is going to make a difference in the world. Do you believe that? So your life has something to contribute to the world. One of our children didn't want to dress themselves when they were small. And it got to the point where we realized that they could dress themselves. They were big enough to perform this task. And I remember right where I was and right the moment that I said, no, you will dress yourself this morning. Big fat tears rolled down the cheeks. But I want you to. I want you to help me. No. You can do this. And finally, they did it for themselves. Why was I so cruel? Because I believed that my child had potential to be more than what they were today and to make a difference in the world. And I was willing to put them through a test, a struggle to get them beyond where they were to a new place. So that they could fulfill the meaning that I knew that they could have in the world. So God pushes on us. And you know, He's a lot bigger than we are. And He can just crush us if He wanted to. But that's not what we saw with Jacob. We saw God pushing Jacob, pushing him. And Jacob wrestling and trying to stand against that pushing. And underneath that pushing, God is saying, your life has meaning in the world. And I want you to engage and struggle and fulfill that meaning, that purpose that you're created for. And as the circumstances of life unfold, our conscience is continually telling us how things ought to be. Now, I, don't, I doubt if any of you here that are an adult wonders what I mean when I say conscience. Because you know that it affects you. You know how things ought to be. And it doesn't take long, and you can talk to somebody, and you can tell that every person has an idea about how things ought to be. Our conscience is a barometer of moral ideas of how things ought to be. I don't know if barometer is the right measuring device 
if you will. That tells us how things ought to be. Galatians 2, sorry, Romans 2, 14 and 15. And this is, Romans 2 is, is a really interesting passage. And if I had more time, I would read most of this first part of this chapter. I'm just going to read these two verses. You can look at them more in depth later. For when the Gentiles, which have not the law, do by nature the things contained in the law, these having not the law are a law unto themselves, which shew the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience also bearing witness, and their thoughts the meanwhile accusing or else excusing one another. And I don't know about you, but that identifies with my experience. When I face a circumstance, I usually have an idea about how things ought to be, and then after I've decided how I'm going to deal with the situation, then I say, well, you know, I should have done it like this, but here's why I didn't. You know, that, so that's excusing me, okay? Or I say, this is the way it ought to be dealt with. I'm going to, do, I'm going to deal with this the way I ought to. And so I deal with it, and then afterwards I say, yes, that was the right way to deal with it. That's what it's talking about in this passage. It's talking about people who didn't have the law, the Gentiles didn't have the law, but they had an inner framework of law written in their hearts that told them how things ought to be. Now, it wasn't perfect in the sense of perfection, but it was there. And we have this moral sense in us telling us that we ought to do things a certain way, and sometimes we don't do things the way that we ought and our conscience tells us that we have failed. So I drew this circle up here. And this big circle represents God and His, His goodness, but also His dominion, so His control. And actually, everything in it is in His control. But I'm going to call it heaven because everything in heaven happens exactly like God wants it to. Okay? When God created the world, then God created the world, and that was in his, within His domain. He called it good, and He gave man dominion over this. And so, in some ways, it's like God, by giving man choice, and dominion, God withdrew Himself in some sense and gave man control over this area. He gave him dominion. But when we fail to live out God's goodness, and I'm not going to, well, maybe I should fill all of them in, we mar what God created to be good, and sin is when we deviate from the goodness that God has established. So when we don't live like we ought, we carry a burden of guilt because we have contributed to the evil in the world. Because evil is the absence of good. It's the absence of goodness. And so when we fail to do what we ought, we feel guilty in our conscience because we have marred, we have taken away, we have deviated from what is good. And we carry that burden of guilt. Ecclesiastes 
Wisdom is better than weapons of war, but one sinner destroyeth much good. So sin destroys evil. I mean, sin destroys good. <clears throat> so what would happen if we, would, if we were able to properly deal with that burden of guilt? If we were able to properly deal with our failure? Hebrews 9.14 How much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered Himself without spot to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? So the blood of Christ takes away sin, but it cleanses our conscience. Why does it cleanse our conscience? Why does it need to cleanse our conscience? Because we need to be made free to serve. We need to be made free to serve the good, which is the living God. So God is good. And our, our conscience of evil needs to be purged. It needs to be cleaned out so that we can be clear to serve God, to serve His good purposes. And there's three things embedded in that, and I'm not going to spend much time talking about them because I don't have time. But the first one, the first two are opportunity and hope. For life to be meaningful, we need to have opportunity and we need to have hope. And God offers both of us both of those things in relation to our guilt of sin. Opportunity to be free and hope that we can be free. And both of those things are important. And then the third thing is that we have a choice. We have the opportunity of choice as well. We can choose whether we take that offering or whether we don't. And then when we choose, then we are accepting the meaning. We have a part that is played in this, and that gives us value. And God has a way of redeeming the evil in our lives. And I was, just really, I was just really hit with this. There was something that I did when I was young that I wish with all my heart I had never done. And about six months ago, God used that very thing in my life to help someone else who had walked through the same experience as I had and helped them to find peace. God is a redeeming God. and He has the ability to redeem evil for good. And He knows that if we can get a hold, if, if we can get a hold of His life and His power, and he, so He pushes on us to get us to get a hold of His life and power, and then he'll have a warrior for good. He'll have a contender for good. If we will voluntarily, by our choice, come over to his side. Now you'd really be surprised if that little man would get up and, or start walking and doing something. But that's what God sees in us. He sees that potential in us. How much more will your Father which is in heaven give the Holy Spirit to them that ask him? The Holy Spirit is life and power for us. 
That was the introduction. Fortunately, the message is shorter than the introduction. So how great is our potential then for good? So if we deal with this burden of guilt, if we receive the Spirit of God, what is our potential for good? Turn to Matthew chapter 5. What if you could make heaven a reality? What if you could make heaven a reality? Just like that. Would you do it? It'd be awfully tempting, wouldn't it? To instantly make heaven a reality. What would you be willing to go through to make heaven a reality? What would you be willing to do? Jesus was not as concerned about getting people to heaven as He was about getting heaven to people. Matthew 5, verse 1. And seeing the multitudes, He went up to the mountain, and when He, had seat, and he, when he was seated, His disciples came to Him, and He opened His mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are they who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are they who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when men shall revile you and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets which, who were before you. You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its savor, how shall it be seasoned? It is then good for nothing but to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. You are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do men they light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. We'll stop reading there. I want to focus in on the first and the last beatitude. The first one is, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. That word is, is a present word, a current word. Theirs is. The poor in spirit, it is present. Presently, the kingdom of heaven. It is presently theirs. The last one, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Current reality. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So Jesus is saying here that the kingdom of heaven is something to be attained now. It's something to get a hold of through a form of existence. A blessed form of existence. The first one is an attitude. The poor in spirit. The poor recognize their need. What does it mean to be poor in spirit? Does it, is it to recognize the need of your spirit? Jason, you had a definition for poor in spirit in Sunday school class this morning. Do you remember what that was? Could you t share it? God consciousness. Okay, thank you. So you see, if you are conscious of God and who He is and His purity, His holiness, His dominion, you're going to recognize how poor you are in spirit. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. 
It has the idea of humility. And God tells us that humility is something that He expects. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, that He may exalt you in due time. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord, and He shall lift you up. That's 1 Peter 5, 6 and James 4, 10. Jesus demonstrated this, Philippians 2. He made Himself of no reputation and took upon Him the form of a servant. But in those verses I read, did you notice it said that He shall lift you up, He may exalt you in due time? See, that's not talking about pride, that He'll lift you up in pride. That's talking about that He will give you value. He'll give you a place of value, of meaning. Humility puts, it, puts us at a place where we can learn and receive. And the poor in spirit are in a place where they can receive the Spirit of God. The power of His Spirit, to be filled with it. The last beatitude is talking about those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. Are you willing to suffer to bring about righteousness? So I asked you earlier, if you could make heaven a reality, what would you be willing to go through to make it a reality? Would you be willing to suffer to make heaven a reality? Are you willing to do what's right even if it means suffering? To do the right thing at any cost? To have an unswerving commitment to what is right? And what is good, even in the face of suffering and death? And Jesus says that if you are, the people who are, that has tremendous reward. Great is your reward in heaven. Suffering brings out the best or the worst in us as human beings. Depending on how we handle it. Depending on how we deal with it. And those people who are willing to walk through suffering and do what's right regardless, there's a high value that we all place on those people. When we see someone who is willing to do what's right regardless of the cost, we always put value on that. We say that has meaning. We're talking about that in honesty in business. Integrity in business. When you're willing to do what's right, even when it costs you money, that means something to people. That has meaning. Paul said this at the end of his life, For I am now ready to be offered, and the time of my departure is at hand. I have fought a good fight, I have finished my course, I have kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give me at that day. And not for me only, but unto all them also that love His appearing. Paul was expressing a satisfaction about his life. Not an arrogant satisfaction, but a satisfaction about his life. He had lived to promote what was good. And that gave him satisfaction. That gave his life meaning. Jesus concludes the Beatitudes here, and then he makes two illustrations. He says, You are the salt of the earth. But if the salt has lost its savor, it's worthless. So we have the potential to add something to the earth. But if we lose those Beatitude characteristics, then we're worthless. And we're good for nothing but to be cast out. 
because we have lost our value, our meaning. Ye are the light of the world. Light extends out beyond yourself. It gives light to others. These beatitudes, beatitude characteristics in the life of a believer express themselves and show good to other people. And Jesus says, let your light so shine that they may glorify your Father which is in heaven so that God can be seen. So if your life can show God, isn't that meaningful? Doesn't that give meaning to your life? Jesus is saying in this passage that we have a moral responsibility for the condition of the world. Your life has a responsibility placed on it by God to bring goodness into the world. That's your responsibility to God. And to display the kingdom of heaven I believe that there's only one thing that can satisfy the demands of our conscience, and that's goodness. Wherefore shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before the high God? Shall I come before Him with burnt offerings, with calves of a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with a thousand rams or ten thousand Thousands of rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? There is no satisfaction in an abundance of, sa of gifts of appeasement. There's no satisfaction for our, con for our conscience in a bunch of gifts given. He hath shewed thee, O man, what is good. And what doth the Lord require of thee but to do justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with thy God. For God to take control of our lives and we begin to change the conditions of the world. Jesus said, the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Gates hold people out. They don't go out and fight against something. They hold people out. The kingdom is meant to be a band of soldiers who are attacking the gates of hell. And Jesus said they will not prevail against it. That's the kind of meaning that your life has, that God wants to see in your life. The kind that eradicates evil with good. So, in conclusion, why am I preaching a message about meaning? And I talked about that just a little bit earlier, but meaning is an antidote to complacency. And we have life so good here in America that it is really easy just to let life slide. To be comfortable. For things to be convenient. And for us to be dissatisfied with 
things that aren't worth being dissatisfied about. But I really believe that if we allow ourselves to be satisfied with complacency, we're going to miss something vital about what it means to be human. And we're going to miss something vital about what it means to show God to the world. We need to find meaning in life through God, in God, in our responsibility to Him. Meaning justifies suffering and struggle. So, John was talking a little bit about some things that he, um, in, in his message Wednesday evening, he was talking about some things that he dealt with in his life. And I know that there's people in our congregation that have things that are difficult in their lives. Life isn't always easy. Sometimes we face struggles. Why is life, is life worth even living? If my life is going to be full of this struggle and this pain, is it really worth living? Well, for it to be worthwhile, we have to have a meaning that's bigger than ourselves. When we're facing that kind of battle, when we're facing that kind of struggle, there has to be something bigger than ourselves that's worth living for. And when we find that in God, we find something that is so much bigger than us and so much more hopeful and so much more complete that life is not only worth living, it's worth being joyful about. We need to find a meaning that anchors us. Maybe you think you don't face this kind of a struggle, or maybe you haven't experienced it, but I believe that it's very likely that either you will experience some kind of suffering in your life or someone very close to you will experience suffering. We need to have a meaning that anchors us before we face the battle, before we face the struggle. I have, a pl I have planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the increase. So then neither is he that planteth anything, neither he that watereth, but God that giveth the increase. Now he that planteth and he that watereth are one, and every man shall receive his own reward according to his own labor. For we are labors together with God. God is saying that you were, are a worker with me. You are hand in hand with me. That is meaning. You are hand in hand with me in bringing about heaven according to the grace of God which is given to me as a wise master builder this is the continuing verses I have laid the foundation and another buildeth thereon but let every man take heed how he buildeth thereon for other foundation can no man lay than is laid which is Jesus Christ Jesus saw his life as a fulfillment of the purpose of God to bring about heaven for others he was a laborer with God. And you could say, well, Christianity hasn't demonstrated that very well in history. But as we look at history, the closer the commitment has been to following the pattern of Jesus Christ, the more real this demonstration of heaven on earth has been. And I would call us to recognize that the depth of our commitment to following the pattern of Jesus and this is a tremendous challenge for me, will be the way that we demonstrate heaven on earth. So that's kind of the big picture idea, right? 
But whoso keepeth his word, in him verily is the love of God perfected. Hereby know we that we are in him. He that saith he abideth in him ought himself also to walk, even as he walked. Jesus walked step by step by step. Day by day he walked. Daily, moment by moment decisions. He hath shewed thee, O man, what is good, and what doth the Lord require of thee, but to do justly, and to love mercy, and to walk humbly with thy God. Day by day, moment by moment, decision by decision. Do you take those moment by moment decisions as if they all had meaning, as if they all had a purpose for this end goal, this big picture end goal? I heard someone say recently, and it really hit me in a new way, I don't remember exactly how they said it, but the idea was that when you lay down at bed, do you live at night? Do you live every day in a way that when you lay down in bed at night, you have no regrets for the day? See, that's what it means to walk as he walked. At the end of his life, he had taken every step to do good. My prayer for my life is that I can be a warrior for God, for good in the world while I'm here. And when I pass from the scene, that my life will still, will have represented and will have started good things that will not die because His life is eternal and I want to show that life in the world.